0: Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys.
1: Good evening, Mr. and Ms. America. This is Joe Dickerson, your host. As we have discussed in our past programs, 80% of the civil judgments in the United States are never collected, and that's what we're going to continue to talk about but get into much more depth this evening than we have in the past. Uh, To kind of set the stage for that, uh, I want to look just very briefly at uh, why this failure rate is so high, and uh, we have... uh, talked to the deans of the top 50 law schools about this and asked them what in their curriculum they have to teach judgment enforcement to uh, students who are becoming attorneys or will become attorneys. And of the top 50 schools, uh, three of them said, oh, we discussed that for an hour or two in our creditor's rights course. I find that to be astonishing that uh, since so many of the attorneys do litigation work and are seeking recovery for their clients that they're not uh, specific courses that cover this in depth. So the attorneys that want to learn how have to pretty well do it on their own through mentors and continuing legal education. But many of them are using the same old process as they've always used, learning from the old timers that were there, and they don't really know what to look for to advance their services, and that's what we're uh, working with the law profession to do. Uh, a lot of them uh, have in the past uh, not been incentivized to uh, get beyond the hourly rates, and this is something that uh, needs a lot of work, and we're making some progress. So, our approach at uh, our organization is if the money's out there. We don't take no for an answer. We'll find it eventually or prove that it's not there. If it is there, we'll recover it for you and uh, get it back in your pocket where it belongs instead of in the pockets of the bad guys. Today, we're going to be discussing the basics and beyond for effective judgment enforcement. We're going to cover uh, three sessions today and then a more advanced in-depth session next week with our same guest, Today, we'll be covering the basic execution strategies, uh, getting paid what you're owed. Secondly, obtaining information about the debtor's assets, and finding additional sources for recovery. And thirdly, strategies for p- piercing the corporate veil and peeling back the layers to uncover those assets. Before we get started with that, I need to tell you that this information is not intended to be legal advice and may not be used as legal advice. Legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case. Every effort has been made to assure that this information is up to date. It is not intended to be full and exhaustive explanation of the law and in any area, nor should it be used to replace the advice of your own legal counsel. Any opinions expressed are the opinions of the speakers. Today, our guest is going to be Al Hochheiser. Al is a very experienced, effective attorney. Uh, he and I have been working together now on probably a dozen or more cases, and I have been so impressed with his work and those of some of the associates that work under him that I have asked him to join us today, and we had so much material that we felt like we needed to cover, we thought we'd break it down into two sessions. So uh, today, we're Get started with that. Al, uh, it's great to have you with us today, and I'd like to get started by asking you to give the audience a little background on your uh, education and experience and how you kind of got into doing this much judgment enforcement work, and then we'll go from there. Al, take it away.
2: Well, thank you, Joe, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to help educate your audience as to the collection process. Because, as you had indicated, 80% of judgments go uncollected. And there's a lot of money out there to be had and to be found. And I've been uh, a lawyer in the collection industry for the last 30-plus years. And uh, I really became excited about it because I wanted to do something with contracts. And the more and more that I learned and found out the needs of clients out there and collecting money. um, I started learning more about the collection trade, the bankruptcy world, all on the creditor side. And I'm currently now with Maurice Witcher, And uh, I do a lot of bankruptcy collection work, uh, as you have indicated. And our goal is to help our clients make the best out of a bad situation when they recover a judgment.
1: Let me ask you, Al, when you say bankruptcy work, Do you work both sides of the bankruptcy cases, or are you predominantly representing uh, creditors whose claims have been taken to bankruptcy court by the debtors?
2: Solely creditor representation in the bankruptcy cases. Um, So you're on the side of the good guys? Always. We wear the white hat, though. (laughs) If you look around today, everybody will think we're wearing the black hat, especially when you have the CFPB and all those debtor attorneys and a lot of litigation going out there. Um, The creditors always seem to be the bad guy, even though they're the ones who are rightfully owed the money.
1: Well, yeah, and when you lose several hundred thousand or several million dollars or your life savings, even if it's five thousand dollars, you feel like you've really been raped a lot of times and uh, are led to believe that there may be no recourse and. Being an old country boy from East Texas, I just don't quite understand the meaning of no. So <laughs> we we don't take that for an answer. Uh,
2: and that makes two of us. And, you know, the, the one thing that I would like everybody to be aware of, you know, getting the judgment typically is not the hard part. A lot of judgments are obtained by default. A lot of judgments are agreed to, and then there's a default in payment. You can be out there and you can obtain a million-dollar judgment. But if you don't have the right tools and the right strategy to collect that money, all your judgment is is a piece of paper. and how many, hopefully. How many times have I said that, and you
1: can't take that piece of paper to the bank?
2: That is correct.
1: All right, well, let's talk about how we uh, get into the uh, strategies of getting paid what you're owed.
2: So the the first thing that I want to bring up is when you're making that loan or making that investment, the key thing to do is get as much information about the person that you are loaning money to as you can, because having that information in the long run will help you collect that debt down the line and collect that judgment. And a lot of people think, no, I don't need to obtain that on the front end. This individual has, you know, a 785 credit score. Uh, I've done business with them in their past, and they've always paid. But the problem is things change over time, and that's when loans go bad, obligations go bad, judgments are taken, and now you're looking for ways to collect. And some of the simplest ways to collect, especially if you have an obligation that's owed by someone who is employed, and is working at his job, is a wage garnishment. And so one of the pieces of information you like to have when you're entering into an obligation or you've taken your judgment is, where does that individual work? Wage garnishments are a very effective tool because it's filed through the court. And what the wage garnishment does is you let the court... No, after you have your judgment, you file a document, which is basically called a wage attachment. That document is filed with the court. The debtor prior to that wage garnishment being filed will receive in certain jurisdictions what's called uh, a note C or a statutory notice, because that gives the debtor the ability to say, I'm going to pay you before you attach my wages. What's one of the best things? The debtor doesn't want his employee employer know that the wages are being attached, that he owes money. That's an embarrassing situation. So the courts have said, we're going to give you the opportunity to make good on this obligation by paying the amount that would come out in a wage garnishment prior to your employer knowing about it. In my history, maybe 15% Of employees when they receive that statutory notice will contact you and make arrangements or send back that statutory notice with the amount that they need to pay and funds to pay that amount. The one thing I do want to point out on wage garnishments is that you're only allowed 25% of the net of the debtor's wagers. And that net is after any alimony and child support they might be paying, any mandatory uh, deductions for payments to the Internal Revenue Service or other government entities. So just because you know a debtor makes $4,000 a paycheck, you're not going to get the 25%. You're going to get the 25% after any deductions that come out of it. Um, The other thing about the wage attachment that that's really good is you run into situations at time where it's a really small company and your debtor is sitting there and goes, you know what? I got the note C. I got the statutory demand. I'm not going to pay it. And what happens? They go to their little payroll office or the individual who handles Doing the checks and say, look, if you don't get a wage, if you get a wage attachment in, don't pay it. I'll take care of it. Well, if the employer doesn't pay in on a wage attachment, you can go after the employer and hold them in contempt, and talk about a pressure tool to get a debt paid. Um, there have been numerous times in my career where I've been executing through wage attachments on. Um, for our clients where we turn around and we file a motion to show cause why the employer should not be held in contempt for failing to pay in on the wage attachment. And the next thing you know, you're getting a call and the money starts coming in because that individual very possibly could lose their job for lying and for fraud. And there'd be cause to do it. One of the things, and and Joe, I mean, You and I on a lot of these cases that we've been working, the key to getting paid and collecting on your judgment is putting pressure on the debtor.
1: Oh, absolutely. Sometimes, uh, you know, I've found that if you're trying to do a wage garnishment, uh, your target or your debtor may well be uh, one of the owners of the company, and they just won't take a wage. They will get a dividend or a distribution or they'll have their wife on the payroll and she gets paid, or their dog gets paid. They find all kinds of ways. I uh, have found that wage garnishments may work on smaller judgments, but when you get up to 50000 and above, I've had very little success in every, ever, ever getting our entire judgment paid. You know, it's it's more of a token payment than it is a serious one. Your experience may be well different than that, and I would appreciate your insight on it because mine's pretty limited to uh, less than good success.
2: And 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 I I agree with you that on Joe, in regard to the size of the balance, makes a difference on how it's going to get liquidated. And we have so many other strategies. And I don't want to do the primer for next week's show, but. Where we get very creative on the larger balances and especially where you have some of this fraud or, or dealings and moving money and bringing in spouses or other family members. And we'll have several stories last week of some great collection success uh, due to bringing family members in uh, by subpoena or debtor's exam and the results that have occurred from that. So uh, don't want to go too far on that. But the wage garnishment uh, is not the greatest tool for collections on larger amounts. What Hal, let's, let's,
1: let's, j- let's jump into uh, judgment liens because we've got about three minutes before we have to take a break here, and I'd sure like to get that in on this session.
2: Right. So, so, so judgment liens are, are a very successful tool if an individual owns property. And all you do is when you get a judgment, some jurisdictions require you to file an additional document with the court to notate your judgment lien. In some jurisdictions, your judgment itself becomes a lien on all the property the debtor owns in that specific county in the state. So the one takeaway, if you think a debtor owns property in more than one county in the state, make sure you're filing judgment liens in other jurisdictions. Judgment liens are great because judgment liens last for five years okay, in most jurisdictions. And they're renewable. So every five years, you can renew your judgment lien. And I can tell you now, when I started my career, I filed virtually judgments, obtained judgments, and filed judgment liens in every court in the state of Ohio. Thirty years later, because my old firm continued to renew those judgment liens on behalf of our clients, they got, I still get calls because I am the attorney of record to say, Oh, Mr. Hockheiser, we're trying to refinance our property or we're trying to sell our property. And this judgment lien that you filed in 1989 is coming up. What can we do to get rid of it? So judgment liens are very effective on, They're not expensive to file if you have to file it because you're not sure that the debtor owns property anywhere. It's more um, a protective method and method, and the good thing about it is it may pay off somewhere down the line.
1: That's right. It's it's one thing to certainly have to do to be sure that you have a position that's of record we have found that we've got less than two minutes here al uh we found that Uh, In most of the cases we work, we have to file a transcript of judgment, or in some places they're called abstract of judgments, which come from the courts, and they don't want the real judgment filed. I've had people that will file the judgment, but it doesn't do them any good unless they have a transcript or an abstract filed, and those are filed in the real estate records, not in the court records, so that they are public record and they can't convey any real estate without taking care of those.
2: Right, and that depends on your jurisdiction. California yes. goes by abstracts, and it also depends how, uh, you know, the eventual foreclosure system goes, which we won't get into, uh, tonight. But, uh, again, I would recommend, uh, talking to your counsel and taking the steps to perfect that judgment as a lien, whether it's by abstract through the real estate records or through the Common pleas courts or whatever court in your county, and they will pay off in the end. And that's a good way because the debtors don't remember some of these liens that go back year after year, and then they try to refinance. Boom, you get paid, and you could get your judgment satisfied.
1: Okay, Al, it's time for us to go to a break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes and continue with this discussion.
0: Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just twenty four ninety five with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at Financial dot com. That's 303 974 5610 or Joe at Financial dot com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here.
0: Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show.
1: Okay, we're back with the second session for the Judgment Enforcement Hour, and I understand we have a caller on the line from Central Oklahoma, Mr. David Maxey. Mr. Maxey, you have a question or a comment for us?
3: Yes, uh, good evening, Joe. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you and, uh, and Al about uh, taking my call. Uh, Joe, I uh, had the opportunity to a recommendation of a friend to read, uh, uh, your diagnostic, uh, prescriptive judgment and enforcement. Uh, I found the book to be very, very interesting. I've got a, at one time I'm, I'm retired now, Joe, and I had a background in, uh, in, uh, let's say high profile individuals. And, uh, as far as security and their assets commercially, uh, uh, my job was to stop them at the curb or the driveway or, or further, if if possible, uh, through uh, various system designs and personnel. Uh, and I found, that, like I said, uh, I'm always interested in these things, and a, and a friend of mine recommended the book. And uh, I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed your book and also make a, a couple of comments.
1: Uh, Please.
3: Joe, I found your book to be very, very concise and, uh, to the point, a good roadmap. And, uh, there wasn't a lot of fluff in there, which I appreciate. <laughs> I like to get down to the bare bones of, of how things work. And that's the way your book, uh, was, was presented. Uh, a couple of things. Well, actually one thing and a couple of areas, and the thing that caught my eye was your, uh, uh, following the money master flow chart that's included in your book. And, uh, I'm an old airplane driver as well, and uh, I, I, believe me, I I believe in in checklists and and doing everything consistently and making sure you done. You don't miss something. It's it's nothing like leaving the runway with an incomplete checklist and and finding out you've got 45 minutes of fuel on board with a three-hour flight. Oops. Uh, <laughs> You can you can get a lot of clarity that way, Joe.
1: Yeah, I bet pretty quickly. So,
3: uh, sometimes suddenly, but uh, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the the just the overall concept of a checklist and how you referenced it into uh, people that do, do due diligence in uh, aviation versus medical, and I found it uh, very very apropos to your to your list. And uh, getting to your list, there was a couple areas that, that really caught my eye that uh, maybe you can kind of expound on for, for, for myself and, and other people that may be listening. Sure. Um, you had, uh, within, that, within that flow chart, you had two items. One was all debits uh, for a 24-month period. and and drilling down to the list for due diligence on checking for assets that have been hidden, I thought was extremely well. There were a couple items in there that I didn't even know exist as far as voice-related transfers, wire transfers, and that kind of thing, and maybe you can uh, 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 comment on it. And the other one that I thought I understood, but uh, after reading... uh, Different ways that you can look at it. Uh, your UCC filings on that list uh, going down into the second tier was was extremely informative, and uh, maybe you'd like to uh, uh, you know talk a little bit about that with your guest uh, if it's if it's appropriate in in your discussion. But again, Joe, I I, I thoroughly enjoyed the the book.
1: Well, I appreciate those kind comments. Let me see if I can speak to the point you made. As far as 24 months debits, what we're talking about is subpoenaing the bank. Uh, 24 months is an arbitrary number, depending on your case, but I like to know where the money's going out of the bank accounts as much as I do where it's coming from going into the accounts, because as it goes out, they may be making investments in oil and gas or real estate. They may be wiring it offshore, and uh, speaking of wires, that's where the voice uh, transfers come in, and I will address that briefly. Briefly, Uh, used to, when you made a wire transfer, you had to have, uh, of course, your name at the bank on your account saying who in your company or in your family had the authority to make a wire transfer. Then you had to have that done in writing. You could call the bank and tell give them their instructions, but then you had to send them a fax. And the uh, facts would say, uh, this is to confirm my previous conversation. I want to move 100000 from my personal checking account uh, to my bank in the Cayman Islands. I'm authorizing you to do that effective immediately. My Cayman Islands account number is so-and-so. Well, uh, we had pretty good luck with that in those days because when they were uh, making their transfers uh, by wire, uh, they had to have those instructions go by fax, uh, usually, and we would subpoena all their telephone records with all their long-distance calls, which included the fax transmission. So if you had a three- to five-minute call to a bank in the uh, Cayman Islands, and that was followed by a 30-, 45-second transmission, you knew where their bank account was. Now, uh, thanks Things have changed, and nowadays you can do that by voice, but again, the bank is required to have on record uh, who can call in and make a verbal transfer, and as in any other transaction of bank, the bank has to keep those records for seven years. Consequently, when you uh, make a voice transfer, those voice records of you directing your banker to move the money to your offshore bank account or anywhere else uh, are recorded, and those recordings are kept on file for seven years. So guess what? We subpoena those from the bank, and then we go to court, and we play that for the judge. And I tell you, when you turn on a voice recording of your debtor transferring hundred grand from a bank in the United States to an offshore bank or into the name of another trust or another entity that nobody knows about, not only do you have silence in the courtroom, but you have the judge's attention. And we have never so far, knock on wood, we have not ever been turned down for any request we made relative to recovering those wire transferred monies. So that is a real blessing. It's pretty exciting to get one and play it to the judge and watch the debtor melt down under the desk as the judge is giving him instructions about how he's going to handle this matter. Now your third point was you, go ahead.
2: Well, and I just wanted to add to that. That's about the creativity and using the tools that are out there. Using the subpoenas, the information that you get when you pull in a debtor or members of his family on a debtor's exam or depositions in aid of execution, it's all there. You just have to be able to use it.
1: That's right. And, uh, Mr. Maxey, on your third comment concerning UCC filings not to avoid your question but that's going to be a significant part of our show next week so be sure and tune in a week from today at five o'clock mountain time and that will be one of the subjects that I will be discussing and will be amplified by uh, Al's experience from the other side of the recovery process. Uh, Mr. Maxey thank you so much for calling it's been a pleasure chatting with you we're going to have to move on with the show now So I think our next session, Al, that we were going to discuss was obtaining the information about the debtor's assets and how to find additional resources for recovery. So you want to jump into that one right quick before we have to do another break? Yeah, that's great.
2: And, and, you know, Mr. Mack, he was a a great lead-in for us, and that was a great question uh, by the caller. Um, So we talked about getting information up front, but you don't know everything about the the debtor at that point in time. The law out there allows a judgment creditor to proceed what's called a debtor's exam. And it is a pleading that is filed with the court, which requires the debtor to appear at the courthouse or in front of a court reporter, however you set it up, under oath, which gives the creditor the ability to ask the debtor all about his or her assets, about everything they own, uh, where they work, what bills they have, where their bank accounts are, things of that nature. We have been very successful on our debtor's exams, and I know at times um, I have clients that push back and say, you know, debtor's exam, the debtor doesn't ever show up, things of that nature. Well, one of the things that we do when we file a notice to take a debtor's exam, we request a long list of documents. And in these documents, that will give us information of potential assets that we can begin to execute on to recover on your judgment. Our standard form has 27 requests that range from where you do your banking any promissory notes, uh, letters of credit, life insurance policies, certificates of deposit. We require them to produce it. We want all evidence as to any real estate ownership, evidence as to any uh, cars, motorcycles, recreation vehicles that they own. Um, We also want to know information about any trusts that they may have uh, (laughs) interests in. We also want to know about transfers that they made and Joe has used, you know, 24 months on uh, his examples with subpoenas. We usually go back and request four years because four years is the time frame in most states that you could go back and recover a fraudulent transfer. And a fraudulent transfer is where the debtor takes an asset and gives it to somebody else, puts it in someone else's name, in order to avoid his or her creditors. And we found the debtor's exams very successful because what happens is the debtors do appear. If they don't appear, you're in front of a judge, and the judge will hold them in contempt. And then the judge will bring them in, and if they don't show up, the judge will have the sheriff go out and actually issue a warrant for them to appear. And so we have found the debtor's exam as a very successful tool of gaining information, which will then allow us to proceed with other forms of execution. Um have an example on one of the accounts that we're working with Joe on. And uh, this was is a $1.6 million balance, deals with some commercial real estate, Um, there's a judgment out there. We filed a notice to take debtor's exam. Got a call from the debtors three days later and started providing us all this documentation. Once we got that documentation, we now have a commercial foreclosure going because we gained so much information. And now the debtor has an attorney and they're calling us and they're coming up with a proposed offer to pay back the obligation, so the debtors' exams we find are worth the money to take the step and at least put again going back pressure on the debtor. Well, the other piece Al, of that. Yep. Go ahead. Excuse Joe. me.
1: Uh, let me jump in here for just a minute before we have to go to another break and share with you uh, a lot of the experience we've had in that. I of course manage most of the cases in recovery for our clients and work with the attorneys to get these things accomplished as you know but my preference all other things being equal and i understand what you're saying and i know it works many times But all other things being equal, I find that the debtors usually don't produce what has been subpoenaed. And the judges in many of the jurisdictions we're in around the country do not necessarily ever issue a warrant for the arrest of the person. They give them three, four, five warnings. And in the meantime, by the very nature of the questions that are asked in the depositions are the documents that are being subpoenaed what we're really doing is telling the debtor what we're going after and they take that opportunity to move it and make it more difficult to recover for instance i was doing a multi-million dollar divorce case for uh, a lady whose husband is a movie producer former roommate of one of our recent presidents and uh a university professor too, and I had found for her $6 million that he had a, in a bank account in rural India. So the next day, her attorney sat down with the debtor and his attorneys and say, okay, we know you've got this $6 million in XYZ Bank and such and such area in India, and the wife is entitled to her half of this, so please uh, produce a check for that amount. And do you know, Al, the next day, that account had a zero balance in it? She called me crying, moaning, and groaning and said, what should I do? I said, well, in my opinion, the first thing you should do is fire your attorneys. Secondly, look and see if there's any malpractice issues there. Thirdly, let's get an attorney that will follow instructions and knows how to negotiate a settlement rather than tell them where all of our guns and bullets are that we're going to be firing at them. And she said, well, can you find my money? I said, well, it's going to be much more difficult. It's going to take longer and it'll be considerably more expensive because now he knows what we're doing. She said, I don't care. Get it. So it took about seven weeks and we found right at a little over $10 million in another bank in rural, more rural, uh, India, and got new attorneys involved and sat down and negotiated a settlement that was very beneficial to our client and that the debtor could live with. So, you know, we have different different approaches to these things. And uh, I prefer to have about uh, answers to about 80% of the questions that we're going to be posing to the debtor and give him every opportunity uh, to commit as much perjury on the record as he would like to. And then we can refresh their memory with the documents of what we've already found. So you got to know your debtor, before you know whether it's a good idea to take a an early deposition or wait later on and get more more data. So, right. and, um, and
2: the timing of, of all your actions exactly. is is the key. And and you're right. It's about knowing you, your debtor. And you know, both of us wouldn't have found the success that we have in this industry. If, you know, we laid all our cards on the table right away. <laughs> exactly. and, and, and we don't do that. And a lot of these things that we ask for, okay, it's prodding. Because in your example, great example, they moved $6 million from one account in India. Now you started to think, and you looked, and you found out there had to be other accounts there. That's where they were doing business. That's where they were moving money. Uh, and a lot of it depends on your jurisdictions. You know, the, the, the states that our firm uh, practices in on a regular basis, though uh, our practice is national, Ohio is a very favorable state for creditors. And, you know, that's why a lot of my experiences in the case we just talked about was a, an Ohio case that we're meeting some success on. Uh, that pay, plays a big role in it. But one of the other things is, without even getting information, is using depositions and aid of execution on family members. And there are numerous times that if you have a belief that there have been a transfer of property to a family member, you can bring that individual in on your judgment who's not against them to gain information. And And that puts a
1: lot of pressure on them. That puts a lot of pressure on the debtor. Al, we're going to have to go to break. Sorry to interrupt you, but uh, we will be back after this commercial break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at FinancialForensicServices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement, you can get your copy for just twenty four ninety five with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show.
1: All right, we're back from break now, and in this session we're going to be talking about the strategies for piercing the corporate veil and pulling back the layers uh, to locate the hidden assets. And when we say corporate veil, we're really meaning various business entities, not necessarily corporations. And uh, there are several different areas that we can be discussing. I'd like to start off by talking about trust. People generally are of the opinion that if the assets are in a trust, they cannot be touched. That is an erroneous assumption that many times we find uh, that we can not only attack the trust, but we can recover substantial uh, assets from trust. And trusts have many, many different names. They may be a family trust. They may be a a grantor trust. They may be a family trust. Who knows what kind of name they're going to have on them. But for our purposes in doing the forensic research, I only have one question up front, and that is, is this a revocable trust or is it an irrevocable trust? Because if it is a revocable trust, and my experience has been, and how you may have different experience here, jump in, but my experience has been probably 75 or 80 percent of the trust we deal with are, in fact, revocable trust, although the, uh, sedlar may not know that uh, and may not have gone to the trouble of finding out and a revocable trust ladies and gentlemen has zero asset protection it is like your alter ego it's like having a dba that you're doing business under it's just a structure and it affords no asset protection conversely a a uh, irrevocable irrevo- irrevocable trust generally has a hundred percent asset protection, so you can't necessarily break up an irrevocable trust, but the techniques that we have used to get to the assets of the irrevocable trust is attacking the assets in the trust by fraudulent transfer fraudulent conveyance. And it's amazing how many times you can prove that those assets were uh, conveyed by fraudulent techniques, which is uh, another part of the law that I wish we had a couple of hours to talk about. But Al, you want to jump in and speak to those uh, subjects that I just covered very briefly? And then we'll talk about some of the other uh, entities and how to reach them.
2: Right. and And Joe, you're you're 100% right when you say the majority of trusts out there are revocable. Uh, There's this, I don't know, national fallacy, as I would call it, that people think because something is called a trust, it gives that 100% asset protection. But unless you have gone to a trust attorney who has set it up correctly and all the documents are executed in the correct ways. Um, you're not. You're typically not going to have a trust that uh, protects um, any execution on that. You see a lot of bank accounts now that are in the name of Joe Smith Trust. Well, just like you said, it's a DBA. So even on those, when you get a judgment you can go back and and begin to execute on those bank accounts you can file complaints to recover fraudulent transfers because every bit of money from your debtor joe smith that goes into the joe smith trust is really his money and that money is being moved and just because it has a trust name uh, being avoided potentially from your execution, uh, the fraudulent tr- conveyance or fraudulent transfer process is the way to get that. It's the same thing with cars or real property that are transferred or somebody uh, receives a gift from somebody of ten, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000, and it's in there. Those are all assets that you're going to be able to get on a fraudulent conveyance. The other thing is, when you look at fraudulent transfers, and I mentioned it before, there's a time period that you can look back. So you can go, well, there was money that was moved into this trust from the debtor, okay? Guess what? I may be able to look back four years. Guaranteed two years most of the time, but most of the states say four years. And if you have that, that's just a... Wealth and the opportunity to get there. Now, when you're talking about irrevocable trust, it's a much harder process. You have to really dig down, and if you can uncover some deep fraud, you may be able to get there. It's very expensive. But
1: not always impossible.
2: But not always impossible, because you have to, again... It's all the information that you're going to pick up over time in your investigation of the debtors using companies like Joe, Joe's that goes out there and does the deep dive forensic investigations. You know, we rely a lot on companies like Joe because, you know, we can handle the legal aspects, but some of it is the way that we obtain the information and, Just because it's an irrevocable trust doesn't mean it's off limits and it's totally protected. You just need to work a little harder and use some extra uh, tools to get there.
3: Yeah, Al,
1: I wrote a white paper, and it ended up being published in a financial journal. But the title of the article was The Good News About Fraudulent Transfers. And I always had these odd looks. What do you mean good news about fraudulent transfer? And I said, well, it's very simple. When a debtor transfers assets fraudulently, they leave a whole trail of documentation that is irrefutable. If you're deeding something into a trust that comes from uh, mom and dad and mom and (laughs) you're doing it for your parents and transferring it in or having them transfer it into a trust that you end up being Uh, the grantor of or or the uh, trustee of and are supposedly looking after your parents' uh, best interest, but you're going to then liquidate those uh, real estate assets and get the cash out and pay bills with it. I mean, every move that you make and ever change in ownership or ever move of assets in and out of a trust is documented. And like I said, usually irrefutable evidence for fraudulent activity.
2: Yeah, to- totally agree. And again, what your listeners need to, to understand is these are not quick processes. We wish they were. We wish you get a judgment, you can turn around, you do some sort of execution, and the next thing you know, you're paid, you have your judgment, or the debtor came to the table and said, here's a lump sum check, we're finished. It's not especially when you're dealing with corporate entities, large balances. And, and corporate entities, not, it's not always the big corporation. You know, they could be LLCs. They could be partnerships. And your debtor is a partner or a, the member of the LLC. And one of the things when you're talking about LLCs, you see so many times that LLCs transfer ownership. But when you look back at it, it's the same individual who is the member. Or the member of the LLC is a company made up of, guess who, your individual debtor. And it's very strategic. Uh, I have been involved in cases where, at times, about every six months, we saw a change in the corporate uh, ownership of the LLC. And the only reason that it was done was to deflect creditors from being, having an easy way to execute on judgments. had a case now when you talk about fraud, and this happened to be a gentleman and his business and It was an LLC, and he went out and he sold his receivables to a uh, merchant cash advance funder, and they're out there and how the merchant cash advances work. Every day, there's money coming out a set amount of the LLC's checking account to cover the cost of the sale of the receivables. Two days after he received the sum of money for the purchase of the receivables, he shut down the bank accounts and he set up a new company. Well, what are we looking at now? We're going, okay, you have a little bit of a problem. Here you have on record that two days, well, three days he set up the new entity, two days after you stopped the bank accounts. Why did you set up the new entity then? Did you let the creditor know that you were going to do that? Perfect example where we now have filed a fraudulent conveyance complaint to get at the receivables of the new business because they were really the receivables of the old business. And on top of it, we turned around and sued for fraud against the individual um, owner or the member of the LLC. And those are the things. You see a lot of it. But you have to go check the records, and all LLC filings or business filings – are going to be filed with the secretary of state of your particular state. Those records are out there, easy to search. And if you keep seeing those movements, we can use the fraudulent transfer and fraudulent conveyance process to pull back um, those funds and that money and any assets that were transferred and be able to execute on the judgment that you have obtained. And I have to tell you, you'll see it a lot of times, that some of these LLCs will be owned by multiple parties. And I know an example in a case that I had where it was ABC uh, snow plowing uh, LLC. It was owned by John Smith, and he had a 33% interest. And then the remaining 66.6% were owned by the trust of each of his three children. Well, if you went back in there, and this is tying in both trust and LLC, Joe, so it's a pretty good example. Who is the trustee of the trust? The individual who was the other member of the LLC. And that's what they do. They just keep transferring from companies, trying to set it up to make it more difficult. But through uh, investigation and using the court system, you can peel back those layers, and you see more and more cases now of the corporate valve being pierced, which is the legal term, and the individuals being held responsible and the assets coming back and their personal assets also being subject to recovery.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Al. Uh, We're getting down to our last few seconds here. I wanted to point out that when we're talking about fraud in these issues, it is a civil matter, not the criminal fraud that most people think of. But uh, the test on that was were these conveyances done to, quote, hinder, delay, and defraud the creditor. And there are several badges of fraud that are indicators of fraud that you can fairly easily prove that in most situations. So we were covering uh, today the subject matter of – The Basics and Beyond for Effective Judgment Enforcement. I think we have covered the basics pretty well. So next week, we're going to go to the beyond. We're going to be discussing creative execution strategies uh, that they, the debtors, weren't expecting. And uh, we're going to have some fun with that. It'll be a much more in-depth program where we go beyond the normal approaches and illustrate some of the deep-reaching techniques and processes. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us this evening, and remember, it's not what you win, it's what you recover that matters.
0: Good night. Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.